and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Guys, welcome back to Challenges That Change Us podcast. It has been a big week this week here at HQ. We had to say goodbye to our beautiful French Mastiff of 11 years. Even though you know it's their time, it is still heartbreaking. They become such a huge part of the family in everyday life. I was only saying to my husband this morning that as hard as it is, it does help put a language around grief and its complexities for the children. We've had lots of conversations about the feelings that have been coming up, ways to look after yourself when you're feeling down in the dumps. So what happened with our beautiful dog has actually helped us navigate this experience with the children and make sense of these painful situations that come up in our world. Now on a more upbeat message, we have finished our six-week course, Surviving to Thriving, Discovering the Secrets of Resilience. And wow, the feedback was amazing. Des said that the program was exactly what she needed in a time in her life when she needed to learn who she was and reset her path. Kerry wrote that it was an absolute game changer. She learned the importance of self-kindness and the difference between strength and resilience and gained a powerful toolkit for navigating life's challenges. And James took away things not only for himself, but for his family and for situations that come up in the workplace. So as a result of all of this amazing feedback and people loving it so much, we have worked really hard to turn it into a course that you can do anytime you like. It is going to be ready this week. So stay tuned. We'll pop it up in the Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. So if you're new to our community, if this is one of the first episodes you're listening to, we would love to invite you over to the Facebook group. Jump in, let us know you're there. That is where we all hang out. That is where we have all our conversations behind the scenes. And we'd really love to see you there. Now on to today's pod. I'm super excited to introduce you to Kevin Dupay, who is extremely well known around here in Armadale, mostly for his time as CEO at the New England Credit Union, as it was formerly known, now in the Regional Australia Bank. And during this time in his CEO role, he developed an organization from a small credit union with only a handful of branches to a 2.5 billion high performance customer owned bank that has some 40 branches across regional New South Wales. He has a decorated career in leadership and now can be found on many boards as a chairman or a director. And he's also mentoring the next generation coming through the ranks. His strengths lie in strategy, courageous leadership and community engagement. In this episode today, we explore his life story his brushes with death and the lessons that he's collected along the way. One of those being how life-altering moments such as surviving a heart attack can ignite profound changes in our perspective and our priorities. Kevin shares with us his heartbreaking loss of his beautiful daughter Grace at the age of four and how this tragedy emphasised the special mark that people can leave on us even if they're only in our world for a moment in time. 
In this powerful narrative, we touch on overcoming physical violence, breaking free of the shackles of your past that hold you back, and the importance of letting go of the parts of your past that no longer serve you. You all know I like to give trigger warnings at the start of every episode so you know what you're in for. There is a trigger warning on this episode around losing a child and domestic violence. If this is not the right episode for you this week, we will see you next Monday. And remember that Lifeline is here to listen on 13, 11, 14. Now, let me introduce you to the man himself, Kevin Dupay. Kevin, I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? Hmm, I've heard some of your other guests' animals and they're very intriguing. Mine's fairly bland, but it's a, it's a dog. The reason it's a dog is because they're, they're kind of man's best friend. They're very loyal. You can kick them and they just keep coming back. At some point, though, they'll bite you. Yeah. And so I think that's me. I'm uh, very loyal and uh, pretty robust, but, you know, eventually I'll turn. I mean, we're going to be talking a little bit about leadership today and the challenges. And I think often you can see that in really strong leader is that they have a lot of patience, a lot of curiosity. They can really sit in the mud with someone and really just be available. However, when pushed too far, then there's this real strength that can come up, don't you think? Yeah. And that's when you find yourself, I think, is when you're tested. Uh, you know, I loved one of the other podcasts, Jono's, about boats. And I've had a couple of times where I've been offshore. I used to sail in the short offshores out of Pitwater on the 42-footers. Once we got caught in a gale, it was pretty horrific. But what was interesting was that I'd been caught once before on a uh, another boat on that occasion, it was awful because we were strangers. We were delivering the boat. It had been in a race from Sydney to Southport, and we were bringing the boat back. So we were a delivery crew that didn't know each other. And it was at the same spot. Uh, it's a little um, island off the coast of Newcastle. It's often you get storms because it comes around, the, you know, comes up the Bass Strait and then come straight up at Newcastle. When it happened on the delivery boat, it was a disaster because we weren't a team and we managed to get through it, but it was horrific. And when it happened with the crew, it was almost fun. It was like clockwork. We all did our thing. We had a skipper there too. Well, I wasn't the skipper, but the skipper took control and the team clicked in the gear. It was really interesting. They were both 30-foot waves. They were both like blowing dogs off chains. But it was entirely different. Mm. Uh, it was a team, uh, whereas the other was a group of people. Mm. That was adversity, I suppose. Yeah, it was like life-threatening stuff. And it's where you can see that transfer. It's where you can see the moments and the pockets of our life where things happen, whether that be adversity, challenge, great things. What can we take out of that and what can we learn from that and how can we transfer the skills or the knowledge or the experience that we had in that moment to other aspects of our life? Yeah, well, I think I'm on my third major relationship and I think each time I've learnt, I'd say I was pretty hopeless at the first marriage, second marriage, better, <laughs> but next relationship, better again because you just learn you're in a team. It's a team thing and you have to play like a team player. 
and your ego has to be able to make room for the other ego. And I think when I started off as a younger person, I didn't understand that at all. So, you know, if I was speaking to my first wife, I'd be apologising for being an egotist and also, you know, not being very good at it. And she'd probably say the same. And we do keep in touch two beautiful children out of it. Yeah, so I think it's about being part of a team and understanding that even if you're the boss, you're just another member of the team and you're no better or more important than any member of your team because it's a team. Mm. And you mentioned there about being a young man and I want to take you back a little bit to one of the challenges that you faced earlier on in life when you were 22. We had a chat the other day around what we wanted to bring up in this podcast and you and I were both sort of undenied and said, you know what, let's just see where it takes us. But I'm thinking maybe a great place to start would be with your experience of the electrocution and having a conversation around what your life looked like then and maybe setting the scene and then what happened? Yeah, well, I was 22. I was in a relationship with the woman that became my first wife and we had two children after that. And I didn't know at the time, but she was pregnant with my oldest daughter, Chrissy. I was working in Barton in the ACT as a junior economist in the Industry Commission, Industries Commission. And I, I shared a room with another guy who's He's still a good friend, Gavin, and uh, he was away. He was off sick, I think. And back in the day, you could smoke at work. So I'd come to work with my cigarettes, but not with a lighter. We had these little two-bar heaters that we used. It was a pretty run-down building we're in. They were little radiators with, you know, two heat bars. And I picked it up to light my cigarette, naughty person, and... uh I touch the bed wires at the back of the heater and what happens when you're getting electrocuted is you either throw it or you grab it and I grabbed it. So my muscles spasmed and I held the heater to my chest, which is never a good idea. And I was basically getting electrocuted and no one was in the room with me and I could hear this person screaming and I thought, what an idiot. Why are they screaming? And, of course, it was me being electrocuted. So I was kind of out of my body a little bit having this experience. And fortunately for me, it made me robotically walk. And so I was walking, holding this heater to my chest like Frankenstein's monster. And it, luckily for me, it had a short cord. It wasn't a very long cord at all. And it pulled out from the wall. And so I stopped being electrocuted. And people had heard me screaming and had come into the room and there I was kind of shocked as it were but alive so they got an ambulance and I had to lie down I I actually felt okay I didn't want to lie down because I thought oh I'm you know that was terrible I'd better stay on my feet I wanted to stay on my feet but they made me go to the hospital and I had some burns I've still got the marks on my hands where I held the heater and on my chest a little bit, but it wasn't horrific. It was shocking. And the doctor said to me, if you're fit, then actually it's not that bad for you. You know, if you can take the shock of being literally being shocked, it sort of rushes through you and stimulates you. But it was a a touch with death, I suppose. It was my first brush with death, and I later had a more significant one. 
it sort of brought me close to that point where I think a lot of people are quite frightened about going to, which is that, you know, when you pass. So it was early and luckily for me, I survived and I had my lovely daughter and had the chance to raise her and my other my other six kids. When you have that experience of being that close to death, I often hear people talk about how it kind of changes the way they view the world or changes the direction they were on or has a big impact on their life. Do you think that that incident did for you? It certainly made me appreciate that we're very lightly on the planet. You know, we're very fragile. Our, our connection to life is very fragile. It made me appreciate life, yeah. And uh, maybe also appreciate fitness, although later in life I lost my fitness as I got into my career more and into my 40s. I think I went from a size 30 to a size 40 pretty quick. I think men do that, particularly if they have busy, tight jobs, gives them an excuse to not exercise and eat too much or drink too much or both. So it did initially give me that appreciation for life, but I probably then, like a lot of people, let go of that or let it fade. And later, when I was 50, as we've discussed, I had a much more significant brush with death. I was having my performance appraisal with my chairman, a lovely guy, Michael Dennis, and uh, he's normally very quiet, but he was quite talkative this night, and everyone had gone home after our board meeting. I was the CEO and he was the chair. We're having a chat, and I'd, I'd started the day with a bike ride with my youngest son, James, who was a special guy really special person for lots of reasons. And I'd had a pain in my palm of my left hand and that pain turned into over seven or eight hours a massive heart attack, which I kept ignoring and pretending it would go away, thinking it would go away. Until about one o'clock in the morning, I realised that it was a massive heart attack. I had this pressure like a ute reversing into my chest. It wasn't so much pain as just this incredible pressure, like I had the, the world's biggest, fattest man sitting on my chest. That's what it felt like. And uh, anyway, I, much to the disgust of my wife, uh, I went and had a cigarette because I'd heard about the American Indians using tobacco to ground them before battle. And I thought, well, this is a battle, Kev, you're in trouble here big trouble. And so I had a smoke and um, the ambulance arrived, uh, Dodge and Lammy, lovely characters, and they gave me an aspirin and put the oxygen on me and I relaxed. And when I relaxed, the adrenaline subsided and my heart stopped. So they tell me I was just getting into the ambulance. So they kind of laid me on, apparently the Dodge tells the story, they laid me on the ambulance my wife, uh, Robin, got in the ambulance with them, with me and, and them, and off we set with Dodge using the defibrillators to try and get me back. Spent three minutes. There's some time where there's a time limit. You're not supposed to keep going after some time. I don't know exactly the protocol, but I think I was out for quite a while, and then I recall hearing Dodge say, I've got him. And then Lammy saying, uh, no, my wife, Robin, saying, go faster, Lammy. And Lammy saying, I'm doing 150, Robbie, that'll do. And we were speeding into the hospital and I was back. But I, I had been gone for three minutes. And I did think about all that and I did have a bit of a feeling of 
being somewhere. It was very calm. So, you know, I take some comfort from that, that there was no feeling of crisis or being ripped from the planet or anything. It was very calm. And, uh, yeah, I just was going. I was leaving and then I was back. Uh, it was kind of like that. I've talked to some other people that have been in comas and things and you've had massive issues as well. And there is this time where you, you're here but you're not. You're on your way and there's an opportunity to keep going or come back. And I guess the defibrillators present you with that that opportunity because they start your heart again. But I got the feeling that if I didn't want to, I didn't have to come back. Anyway, that was a realisation that there is a lot of fragility with life and I've looked after myself much better since and uh, don't smoke. I've got a great personal trainer that I think you know, Mally McCormick, legend, Bodicea of Armadale. So uh, that was a big life event and it taught me that every day is precious, every single day. And so I started the clock again and treated that as the beginning of my second opportunity at life, maybe my third if you count the electrocution. Made me wonder about what I was, why that would happen to me when so many wonderful people leave early. You know, I lost a lovely daughter at four, you know, that Gracie, and that seemed to me to be way too young. But then she was remarkable, and so maybe it's not about the time you're here, it's about what you do the legacy you leave. And she left a lovely legacy, beautiful little girl. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Gracie? We wanted to have a big family. I particularly wanted to have a big family because the first marriage didn't end well and a lot of that was due to my ego, I think. So I didn't really get to raise those kids much. I've always wanted to, you know, be in a family environment. So my second wife and I decided we'd leave the city. where We were in Sydney. We met in Sydney and we moved to Armidale, great city, to work. I had the job of deputy at Regional Australia Bank, and I became the CEO. And we raised a big family, built a straw bale house out of town in Milne Road out on the Castle Doyle. We had five kids, five and under. And the reason that we ended up with five kids was because our fourth one turned into identical twins. And Gracie was an undiscovered identical twin. We found her underneath her twin sister, Isabella, when we did the ultrasound at 18 weeks, as you do. And there she was, sitting underneath her big sister, hanging on. We came to the understanding that she was hanging on because if she didn't hang on, her sister and she would have both slipped, as identical twins often do if there's something wrong, because they share a placenta. So she was hanging on so her big sister could make it, and her big sister did make it. But at 18 weeks, we found that she was completely malnourished. She'd had no food from the placenta, and she had the cord wrapped around her neck, and she was dying and desperately hanging on for long enough for her sister to be able to survive. There was a professor called Professor Trudinger who'd done this thing. It was twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome was what was going on where one twin gets all the food and the other doesn't get any. And we've said to Bella, her twin, that Gracie was sending it to her. But, you know, what was happening for Gracie was she was getting profoundly damaged by having no nutrition, particularly brain damaged, I would have thought, because, you know, protect the heart, 
and everything else suffers. And so anyway, this professor did this surgical procedure where he opened the the two sacs of the twins and created an outer sac. And at that stage, the placenta recognised that Gracie had some fluid in her sac and so sent her food. And she, they went to 34 weeks and they were born quite fat. You know, I think they were 1.1 and 1.2 kilos. You know, big kids for premies. Yeah, they weren't even oxygenated. They were, they were in their own air. And uh, But Gracie was profoundly disabled, but a very special girl. She went to the Steiner School, as all, all our kids did, and uh, went to the preschool and but she found it quite difficult. She had to walk in a frame and uh, her speech was indecipherable to most people but not to us and not to her carer. So, And the kids at school were very lovely and kind to her, but, of course, she gave them something special. So what I got out of that was a massive insight into the lovely world of disability and how those people are incredible people and I was talking yesterday to some ex-colleagues at the bank about Gary, our special guy at the bank who lives with fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah, anyway, he's been at the bank for oh, maybe 20 years, 15 to 20 years. We hired him and he's the person that's changed everybody's life there. Whenever you're feeling down, go and have a talk to Gary. He's just such a light. You know, he's a wonderful person, West Tigers supporter. So... He suffers from that, like all West Tigers support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a beautiful spirit. And I think you realise that the spirit is in people and it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. We used to put her in her walker and leave her in the aisle at Coles and we'd go on with our shopping and she'd just sort of walk in her way up and down the aisle and people would engage with her. And it was interesting. Some people found it too confronting because... You know, she was very cerebral palsy and would dribble a lot, as she did. She couldn't help that. But it was interesting how, of the identical twins, she was the one that was fastidious about her looks. Bella would just get up and look gorgeous, make her own clothes, and not really care that much about her looks. But it was Gracie who really wanted her hair brushed and wanted, you know, nice, pretty clothes and so on. So we'd leave her in coals for people to have the benefit of her company and just walk around and do the shopping and come back and fetch her at the end. <laughs> I think for some people, they were like, what's going on here? Where are the parents? But we just wanted to share her. <laughs> Where are the parents? I used to put her on my shoulders and she couldn't sit there because she had no posture. Like a lot of people with, you know, kind of physical disabilities, she couldn't sit. You had to hold her. So I'd just keep swapping arms and like doing a dance. And she loved it up there because she could see everyone and and it would give her this sense of being amongst people. And so I'd often walk around town with this gorgeous girl sitting on my shoulders. And I loved that. I loved that time. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, I loved what you said around you don't have to be here for a long time to leave an impression. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we lose a lot of people by suicide and people – you often hear them talking about what a wonderful contribution they've made or someone, you know, gets cancer at a young age and we feel like we wish they had more time here, but their time here is what it is and uh, they make their contribution. Um, even if they're taken away 
suddenly in a road accident or something like that. That that is their time, and so that's their contribution. And in Gracie's case, it was four years, but she made a profound impact on me, at least as all her siblings, at least, because she was a remarkable person for overcoming her adversity and and being the wonderful spirit that she was watching her play with the kids in the playground at the Steiner School and seeing how she lifted those kids. You know, she was a gift to them as she was to us. And I guess if you see people as that, then it doesn't matter how long they're here. You just appreciate them for, for who they are. On the other hand, you know, some people get to their Zen state quite late. My mum's 92 and She's forgetting everything that happens, you know, within a couple of seconds of it happening, but she's so at peace with it and she's just so lovely and serene. She's such a wonderful person. I was having this conversation the other day with someone because my mum has dementia and very similar, forgets everything a moment after, but but is happy, you know, and the thing that you're talking about is what I see in my mum on a daily basis. Her spirit is there. She might not remember, but her soul and her spirit, if anything, she's even becoming more kinder and more generous, which I don't even think is possible, of her time. And, you know, she's constantly like just checking in and, you know, how is this for you? And like really because she forgot that she asked that question, but her spirit is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think it's the lack of clutter. Someone said that memory loss is freedom, that we hang on to things so many memories that we don't need, particularly negative ones. And, you know, that's something that I've struggled with all my life is being able to let go of, of stuff that it, it really isn't important. You know, we've had a conversation about quite a difficult um, upbringing that I had in terms of physical violence, not anywhere near what other people have been exposed to, but enough to have an impact on me. And having to let go of any feeling of negativity about that and just just being at peace. And then stuff happens. People aren't the best version of themselves every day and sometimes you get you get the back end of somebody's bad mood and just letting go of that, not engaging in that. I guess that's how world wars happen because people can't let go of stuff. And so, you know, there's not enough goodwill in the world, whereas it, if you can let go of it like our mums, they're not hanging on to anything. They're just like in the moment. Um, trying to live in the moment is such an important exercise. I'm still struggling with it, getting better at it. Let's open that up a little bit around letting go of the things that no longer serve us or the past that holds us back in shackles. You said that you're just you're still learning it. I think we constantly still learn as humans and I think we, we might feel like we start to get on top of it and then all of a sudden we notice that we're in reaction again or something's happened in our world or something dips us back through into it. But how have you or what have you learned over the years that's helped you in that space? Well, I think probably I'm trying, still trying to learn to forgive myself for bad behavior and to learn from it and to move on. And then forgiving other people as well. Because if you hold it inside, it's only going to rot in your gut. Just the realization that kindness is so much more empowering than the opposite of that, that feeling your will towards others actually affects your own health. You need to be as pure as you can be 
it's hard because our weakness, our tendency is to go towards negativity for some reason. I don't understand that in the human condition. Not everyone. You meet some souls like Gracie and others who are just beautiful people that don't have that, that have never said an angry word. But most of us go to angry words too quickly and have to, you know, dig themselves out of holes. I mean, I've got myself in situations where I think, you're a bloody idiot. How are you going to apologize for this? But I've learned more and more to go to the apology quickly and forgive yourself and move on because otherwise you get stuck in life and you waste time. You know when you look at your watch and you think, oh, it must be about seven and it's always more like eight. It's never less time than you thought. It's always, and it's because it, we're only here for a really little time. And it's the one thing we don't get back, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's so valuable. So don't waste it on negativity. That's something that I've, I'm getting better at. I think I've been as big a bitch as anyone over the, over the time, but I'm hopefully less of that now. And I do look for opportunities for random acts of kindness. Love that now. You know, if you see somebody that needs a hand, just go and give them a hand. Like, what's the worst that can happen? And it's, it feels so good to see someone go, wow, oh, oh, you did that for me. And I'm thinking, Kevin, we've opened up a little bit of your, your world. I know there's like we've touched on a few things, but but major things that have happened in your life. This all had a profound impact on your leadership, the experiences that you've had, what you brought into your leadership role. I'm just wondering when you think about that together, what comes up for you? Oh, I think the ability to harness people into a team, to create a vision and to have people follow you. I've known some very good leaders and strategic thinkers over the time, but invariably the weakness has been the inability to be patient, galvanise the people and have them come with you. You know, to be able to think about where to go is not enough. You have to be able to convince others and persuade them to follow you. I've learned that stories are a good way to do that. I mean, this is why I love the challenges that change us stuff because there's some great stories in there that you can learn from. Humor is another one. I love John O'Peatfield's one where humor is such a big part of his leadership style. And I'd have to say mine is too. You know, people say that I, I've got a, a whole bag full of sayings that are meant to describe, to connote things. So they, you know, like, oh, head like a robber's dog when I'm talking about some bloke. I don't know, my staff would talk about it. When I, when I left, they did a, um, a Zoom session where they had done labels where they'd picked one of my sayings and each of them had them, you know, where they were in, in the Zoom. So I had my whole team on Zoom and they each had one of my sayings there. It was so funny. When I'm talking about how well the business is going, I might say it's going like a, a whippy stick or it's going like a busted arsehole, you know. So those sort of expressions, which are probably slang, they're mainly derived from English language, I suppose, with strine thrown in. My father was an interesting character, not always in a good way, but he was what they called the master of the rhyming slang. So back in, in his day, they would describe things like your hands were your German bands, your wife was the, your trouble and strife, 
you know, they would use those sort of expressions. And he could have a whole conversation like that where you think, what is he saying? But actually, they were words that were rhyming slang. And uh, I think that goes back to, you know, England during the war, that kind of period. What have you learned over the years in that space? I think one of the big things I've learned is that everybody's special. Everybody's got a story. And so as a leader, you need to understand your people at a personal level. And whilst we leave our baggage at the door, we are who we are. And so you need to understand who your people are and they really need to appreciate or they do appreciate if you have some knowledge of who they are and what they aspire to. So in the bank, we had about 300 staff. And I think I can say that I knew all of them to some extent. I certainly knew all their names and I knew their story pretty much. I used to do a thing called the Mighty Ham Run. And I'm really pleased to say that the new guy, David Hine, has continued that. I'm really happy about that. Although I used to have a pie competition, which was always won by the pie shop in Aberdeen. I can't remember the name of the pie shop, but he's replaced that with a milkshake contest, which I reckon is a bit lame, but anyway. <laughs> I want to know what these are, though. You have to explain them. You can't just throw them out there and not tell us what they are. Well, the, uh, the Mighty Ham Run, regional Australia Bank's got branches right throughout regional New South Wales, as far out as Cobar and up to Mungandai, across to Tenderfield and down to the Hunter and everywhere in between, in tiny little towns. So I would spend a month, the last month of the year, visiting all of the branches and all of the staff in our, because we had a number of head office buildings, Port Macquarie and Armidale, and delivering a ham. And we got the hams from Alexander Downs, a piggery in the Lower Hunter, free-range piggery. And didn't matter if you uh, were a vegetarian or you, yeah, you didn't eat pork. It was a gesture around Christmas to say, it's a tough time at Christmas and we really appreciate you. And here's something that you can take to the family Christmas meal or you can swap for a carton of beer, as some people did. We had a Moroccan guy who's a Muslim and, and he used to swap his for a case of beer and then he'd give the beer to his best mate. <laughs> you know, you could do what you like with it, but we would give them a ham and some local chutney and so on. And most importantly, we would say, I would go personally and say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us for the year. And we'd have a chance to have a chat about, you know, I remember one of our staff in Trangy, her husband drove a header and, you know, uh, how's he going with it and how's the, how's the crop and uh, how's work and how's the kids. And, you you know, maybe you'd actually drop a ham off to their house because the branch might have been closed. In Trangy, it was only open a couple of hours a week. And you'd have a chance to meet them at a human level, genuinely meet them in the, in the true meaning of the world, word. And they would appreciate that you were a leader that understood and appreciated their contribution. And that's so empowering. And they would do stuff for you that nobody else would expect them to do. And they would do that for the organisation. So a good leader does that for all the right reasons. But we had massive productivity, fairly low turnover, because why would you leave a place like that? You know, we really looked after our staff. And as an employee, I expected that as well. And 
you know, the board were very good to me as well. And you said about understanding people at a personal level, and this is something that I often hear come up. It's about how do you have professional boundaries and bring your personal life into work and where's that line and what does that look like and isn't going in and asking people about their personal life overstepping the bound? You know, these are the conversations I hear people talking about and I think you can absolutely hold professional space and still know the person like you're saying. It's like understanding what their dreams are, their hopes are, understanding what their challenges are, having conversations about how are we relating together is about bringing the person and understanding the person. It doesn't necessarily have to be about what happened at home or what happened in their world before they came to work that day. That's right. Yeah. No, I think also it, it's an appreciation that life sometimes gives you lemons. Like an example for me was when Gracie died. You know, I don't remember the six months after Gracie died. I don't remember what happened. But somehow somebody did my job and people supported me and my family during that time, you know, the meals that people bought and just the kindness that people showed. And, of course, we did that for so many of our fellow employees. We had a a young woman who had tongue cancer in Moree and the executive fundraised by riding to Moree on bikes. And I remember one guy, <laughs> they had to push him the last bit from uh, probably about 20 k's out of Moree because he couldn't pedal anymore. And <laughs> when he fell off his bike in the middle of town in Moree, someone rushed up and gave him a beer and he just sat in the gutter and laughed and drank his beer. But he did that for her. And, you know, that was something that the staff could see that the executive were true, kind leaders as well. Stuff happens and you need as an employer and as a colleague to cut people some slack when that happens. I reckon, you know, like uh, I remember some of our little branches, if some customer was having a bad day, our staff knew because they were so close to those customers and they were prepared to say, are you okay? You know, because they knew they were off themselves. You know, they weren't their normal self. And so we weren't really just a bank. We were much more than that. We were a trusted relationship that, you know, was important to people's lives. And people would come into the branch really just to say hello and to share whatever they needed to share. It was a bit like, you know, kind of a counselling service in a way. And that was pretty special. And it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about how a lot of people (laughs) say one of the most biggest challenges in leadership is working with the people. And I'm like, you've got to fall in love with that process. You've got to fall in love with knowing your people. You've got to fall in love with the challenge of embracing relationships, whether they are up, down, sideways, like any relationship between two people is not always going to be smooth. Whether that be an employee-employer, whether that be a husband and wife, like a child to dad, a mother to daughter, cousins, whatever it is, every relationship has its own challenges and it's how we meet in the middle in those moments. And I think that, you know, if anyone's listening out here, hopefully through this episode you're starting to think about how do we see relationships in our workplace. The appreciation of people and what they can do for you If you want to be sort of cynical about it, I love engaging with people. But if I didn't, I would still make the effort because you can't really achieve anything on your own. I mean, there are individual sports, but most things in life require teamwork. 
relationships require that, the workplace requires you to be in a team, and you need to be able to engage with others. I remember I did a course, it was a great course, back in France, in a place called INSEAD, in a lovely town called Fontainebleau, and it was a month-long leadership course, and there was an Indian guy who was a bit of a legend, and his first name was Anil. I can't remember his surname, but what he said to us was, what is the opposite of what you are thinking? What is the opposite? So that you can think about putting yourself in someone else's shoes and not being locked into a position, you know, so because that's what frustrates us about people is they don't immediately agree or see where we're going and you have to bring them with you, persuade them, but also importantly, be prepared to move your own view. Because if you've got an idea, Absolutely, surely, someone can improve that idea by adding to it. And so that's the beauty of teamwork is someone throws an idea out there and then everyone helps shape it, but it'll never be perfect first go. How many people get a hole in one? That's impossible, very rare. And so in a team, we all shape the idea. Someone throws it out there to begin with and then off we go. And it's a lovely dance we have. Humanity can be a lovely thing when we all work together, I think. We've kind of opened up around some of the adversity and led into the leadership space, but I guess one of the really big lessons that would have come about through all of your experiences would be starting to unpack and understand how you show up for yourself in the face of adversity. Because sometimes we show up and we're not proud of who we are in that moment and other times we show up and we're like, yes, what a champion. <laughs> I guess for the listeners, I'm wondering, you know, would you feel comfortable sharing with us some of those moments of how you've seen yourself show up in adversity and then what you've done with that? Yeah, yeah, it's a very personal thing. I, I think even way, way back, and I hadn't really thought about it until you just asked that question much since then. When I was very, I was, I think I was about 18 and I had a lovely girlfriend and we still keep in touch, but we broke up and the, the problem with that was we'd grown so much together that there was this persona and there was no individual. We were both so invested in the, the combination of ourselves that when we split up, we didn't know, I in particular didn't know who I was. And I had to find that id, I think they call it, your id. And I think when you're up against the ropes, that's when you find that inner you that has very little to do with this body that you have or the, the sound of your voice. It's just who you are inside, that little piece of you that is where you are. So at 18, I had to find it. And then again, when I had these big things happen, particularly when Gracie died, but also just, you know, having five kids five and under and taking over running a bank, you know, that all happened very close together and and then, you know, four years after after that, losing Gracie and having to pick myself up and keep moving. I think you realise that, you know, I call it seven foot tall and I know some people are seven foot tall, but I'm five, ten and a half if I stand on my tippy toes. And, but what happens in adversity, if you can rise up, you become seven foot tall. The idea of being seven foot tall is actually about your capacity to withstand. And, you know, some of the people that have published things about their lives 
where they've been under such enormous pressure, you realise that they that we're all capable of that. I think you know, there's been a couple of occasions where I've extended myself way beyond what I thought was possible, mentally, spiritually, physically, and so I know that if something really bad happens, I can respond. It's a choice we make. You know, giving up is probably something that is, whilst it's easy, doesn't grow you at all. Striving grows you. And it is true that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It is true that adversity is our best teacher. And and sometimes heartbreak can also show us how to how to feel our emotions as well. And how to how to give too. You know, when when we're ripped raw, that's when we're at a stage where we actually can have a really good look at who we are and how we can be the best version of ourselves. Being stripped bare actually gives us an opportunity to grow. And I'm thinking as you say that because I believe in that so much from the bottom of my heart. Like the darker the days, the brighter the days as well. You know, when you've seen, when you've felt at the bottom, when you feel like you've faced death, the sun can shine so much brighter on a good day. But I'm also wanted to mention that that doesn't take away the moments in time on your everyday life that you still feel like you you lack confidence or the imposter syndrome or, you know, can I do this task? Like you can have these big moments of life, but it doesn't take away those small moments that we sometimes feel a little bit wobbly, don't you think? Yeah, I do think that, yeah. And and we look at some people and we think, gosh, they got so much ability and they're so strong. But we all have our weak, weak moments and we all have our doubts. And I guess that's why having good people around us, surrounding us off with people who are kind and supportive and understand us is so important and avoiding negativity in our lives because it is toxic. You can carry that to organisations as well. You can see toxic culture in organisations, but it actually is quite easy to turn that around with positive leadership. If we if we go back to the leaders, you know, just to get ready for this podcast, I was watching Barack Obama talking about leadership and and he does talk about the need to be so positive and to surround yourself with positive people and you know that that does galvanize us into a you know very strong team positivity you've talked about life and lemons you've talked about some of the lessons you've taken away but not necessarily some of the strategies that you've used to get through is it your mindset it's mindset but it's also who you surround yourself with you know how you how you work your way through it. I had one yesterday. I, I was expecting a, a a very large check from the tax office, and it turned round to a very large bill because my final payout, the big salary, someone made a mistake. You know, it was a fifty thousand dollar difference that happened in a heartbeat, and you know, I'm only on little money now, and I had to get over that. Pivot's a stupid word, but pivot and do a deal with the tax office and I did that in two hours and I did that because I know money's not important and I just know that I had to deal with that so I could move on and get on to things that are important and so I had to you know I've done a two-year payment plan with the tax office and fifty thousand dollars worse off but so what materiality doesn't matter I guess that's and one of the things you realise is what matters is people. That's all that matters. It's it's all about who you who you meet along the way and how you behave. 
you'll be remembered for for how you behave and that's influenced by the people you meet along the way. I think what people often say, I don't know if you get this, Kevin, but people always say to me, but I'll, how did you do it? I'm like, the combination of everything. You know, it's the combination of the habits, the behaviours, my environment, the mindset, that it's it's not like a step one, two, three, but people still look for those little things that they can be like, I could try that today. I'm thinking for you, when you come up against the odds or when you're in a difficult situation, what's something that guides that? Yeah, well, I think uh, uh, there's conversations that you have with yourself as you go through life that get more and more insightful as you understand who you are and what's important really in the world. You have this constant conversation about your values and I think not straying outside your values, not breaking that undertaking you have with yourself to be your best version of yourself. And we stray, of course we stray because we're weak, but understanding what is important, what life's about. And, you know, for me, it's the people you meet along the way and the experiences you have as a result of that and how you engage with them. And, you know, I don't really strive to be remembered particularly, but I want to be remembered as a kind person. I want to be remembered as someone who took the time to get to know people and cared about them. And therefore, you know, I use that in my leadership style. I use that because that's the sort of leader I am. If I was a different sort of leader, I'd use other tools. I'm a people leader. And so I need to think about galvanizing my people and getting, I can get a strategist. I know a really good strategist. You know him too. The Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's a great strategist. But I'm the people leader that can use his strategies and make them happen. I don't have to be everything. I'm only a member of the team, but I'm the one that can get them to run up the hill with me, and that's my job. Everybody else has got a job in the team. That's my job. And just stay true to who you are, I think. Be yourself because everybody else is taken. You know, that's how it is. Don't try and be somebody else. For years, I used to be attracted to people who were very showy, some of the people I spent years running around with were, were, were the sort of Pied Piper types. And people would say to me, why do you run with them? They're shallow. But I was attracted to them because I thought that's what leadership was. It's not. You don't have to be flash or fancy or, you know, show off. You just have to be genuine. Be yourself. Uh, be consistent and value those around you and be kind. They're the things that make good leaders, I think. And that'll get you through. Just keep remembering what your value set is and don't deviate from it. And I think that's where when we're looking over the fence at someone else and we're thinking that, like you said, they're running a different show and people will be attracted to you for who you are when you're really authentic. You'll be attracted to those people in that situation when you're being really authentic. It shows up pretty quickly if we're open to looking when there's a misalignment there. It does. And you don't feel balanced when you're not being authentic and you're not actually playing to your strengths. That doesn't mean you can't improve. We all can improve all the time and keep learning and and just keep trying to be as much a person that you are. Don't try and be someone else. And then just be kind to people. I think kindness is 
is uh, very underrated. It's such a lovely thing to give. Try giving randomly. Just find someone and give them something. I had this icebreaker, which is a New Zealand-based superfine merino product, shirts and things, and I had a really thick one. And one night I was in Sydney and there was a woman in, in a little alleyway who was homeless and it was a freezing night. And I, I said to her, aren't you cold? And she said, yeah, but, you know. I said, how did you get here? And she told me her story. And I said, oh, I'll be back. And I went to my room and I got my big 360 micron giant. It was a massive size because I'm a big unit. And I took it back to her and I said, use this or trade it. You know, give it to someone else if you like, but it'll keep you warm. At least tonight you'll be warm. And I thought, that's really good because I really valued that. That was my favorite piece of clothing. And I gave it to her because she was cold. But that was a good thing to do. And doing good things is such an important part of being a human, I think. And giving without expecting something in return, you know, that's what I heard there. Yeah, that's right. And I, I used to always wonder if people had appreciated what I gave them or used it wisely. And someone said to me, I think mum might have even said to me, once you've given it, it's gone. You've given it openly and freely. What they do with it doesn't matter. They could give it on to somebody else. And that might be a nice thing too. So just give. Giving is good. It's much better than receiving. And it took me a long time to learn that. But yeah. You can learn. <laughs> Still <good>. learning. <laughs> yeah. Okay, to tie this off, I'm just thinking, is there a one-liner or a mantra or a piece of advice that you have collected along the way that still holds rings true to you today or something that's really special to you? There's one by Mother Teresa where she's reported to have said that she knows God would never give her more than she could handle, but she just wishes that he didn't trust her so much. You know, I, I think we are given some things to get through to develop us, to grow us. So, you know, if there's adversity, just think, you know, I can handle this. It's not exactly what I would have wished for, but I can do this. I can get through this. All righty, let's bring it to an end. What a beautiful conversation. What I do love to finish every episode with is asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Like, you know, the giggle juice that you get that your belly shakes, like it's contagious for everyone around you. I knew this question was coming and I was talking to my partner, Miff, about it. And, you know, I said, would it be arrogant to say me? And and I loved what Jono said about his wife not being funny because Miff's a professor and I said, you know, academics are not funny. Every time she tries to be funny, I say, keep going, kiddo, you'll get there. And I realised it's not me. What it is is my version of my father's sense of humour and he's been dead for 37 years and that's why I couldn't remember it was him. He was so funny, absolutely ridiculously funny and quite almost to the point of bad taste. It was that sense of humour where you cringe but you can't help but laugh and he's given me some of that. So my little version of it is nothing as like his belly laugh humour. It was my old man when he was when he was around many moons ago. It was old Dicky. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving up your time and coming on. It was just like sprinkled with so many little gold nuggets and one-liners throughout the whole episode. It was like 
you know, we'd be opening something up and then there'd be this beautiful little one-liner and then we'd open something up and there'd be this another little beautiful one-liner. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your story, your experiences and your knowledge with us. Thank you, Ali. Absolute pleasure and so easy to talk with you and a lovely experience. Thank you. Oh, as we wrap up today, that was a powerful episode and there was so much for us to take away individually. I know I can only speak for myself here, but, you know, just things that we can apply to our own lives as we face adversity or in the workplace, how to grow our teams, how to be better leaders. And if you found this episode helpful or you think that someone else might benefit from listening to it, please share it with your friends and family and your colleagues. It is how we spread the word. It's your word of mouth that helps grow this platform so we can have a more positive impact on people's lives. It is through the stories that we share that we build this connection and it's the community that we're growing nationally and internationally here at Challenges That Change Us. So thank you so much for being a part of that community with me. I am so happy to have you all here and I cannot wait to see you all next Monday with our next episode and our next beautiful guest. Have a great week, guys. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.